KYW Original Podcasts. I'm Charlotte Reese. We're a week past the Pennsylvania primary, and we're getting a better handle on just how big the challenges are of casting your vote during the coronavirus pandemic. We're just now seeing some of the results finalized. And slower final numbers are just the tip of the iceberg. States across the country reported problems and growing pains during their primaries. So what can we learn from these primaries? And will we be prepared for the general election in November? Jack Santucci is a teaching professor in Drexel University's political science department. He joins the podcast to talk about public health, voting, and how the political climate right now reminds him of another time in history. Just to start off, can you introduce yourself and tell me what you do? Sure. I am a teaching professor of politics at Drexel University. My research areas are party politics and election reform in the United States. I just had a paper accepted on whether 2016 was a realigning election. My other research is on the progressive era movement for multi-party friendly electoral reforms, why that movement happened in the first place, how it evolved, and why it ultimately was a big failure. Uh, and that sets me up to talk about voting in elections sort of over the long stretch of 20th century history. Pennsylvania's primary just happened, and then about a week later, all of the results are finally in. Why is that? What were some of the biggest challenges facing the primary this year? My um, my just casual understanding of the situation is that, you know, these are extremely challenging circumstances. And I'm basing this partly on what I've heard about what happened in Georgia as well. COVID created a lot of pressure for mail-in ballots. Uh, I got the sense out of Georgia perhaps that some local election officials didn't expect to deal with the sort of turnout they ended up getting. They thought that COVID would keep people home. Uh, I also heard that there were machines that poll workers had not been trained on at all in some cases. So there were a lot of logistics. I mean, you see what's going on right now, and this creates logistical nightmares. Uh, but in the sort of broader, broader scheme of things, election administration in this country is a very decentralized affair. You know, the sorts of constitutional protections for voting rights that might lead to a more robust system of election administration just don't exist here in the United States. That that puts a damper on the kind of political will you would need to have, say, you know, a national level independent election commission or standing armies of professional bureaucrats uh, who run elections and, and do lessons learned about what it was like to run an election in, in between elections rather than, you know, an army of volunteers, which is really who's in charge in the United States. I mean, there are elected officials who are ultimately responsible for the conduct of elections in their states, but uh, it's really a volunteer operation here in this country. Mm -hmm. Have you heard any maybe good surprises that came out of the primary and anything that maybe worked out better this year? I mean, my my sense is that there still needs to be some preparation for uh, 
a lot of mail-in balloting in November 2016. You know, I, I've heard people, you know, people have requested mail-in ballots and didn't get them. That seems like that could be a, a pretty big issue uh, if we, for example, expect uh, COVID-19 to become a big problem again in the fall and uh, people are increasingly requesting mail-in ballots. You know, these are primary elections, uh, largely Democratic primary elections. November's a different ball of wax. Uh, especially if people's feelings about politics remain as intense as they are, there's going to be a lot of demand for mail-in balloting. Uh, and, you know, there's litigation to, you know, make mail-in balloting difficult in some places. So uh, that's the that's the big challenge. You know, are, can we run this thing uh, via the postal service if that's what it comes down to? And it looks like that's what it's going to come down to. Mm-hmm. As you already, you know, started talking about November and Pennsylvania is a huge key state when it comes to the general election. And you mentioned Georgia. How do you see these challenges being addressed for November? Well, the the indicator to watch is always sort of partisan control of state government. So you look at some of the states where the mail and balloting has been an issue, right? Wisconsin, you know, that's a state that's been in the news a lot for its voting and elections issues. You know, Pennsylvania is kind of in this transition zone where we have, uh, you know, both parties are pretty strong in the state, but there are weird things happening with the balance of power between the parties and within the parties. So those kinds of macro factors, who's in control of the state, are what you want to watch as you start to look at what the regime for November twenty November twenty twenty is going to look like mail and balloting is sort of in the best shape in states that are largely Democratic controlled. Uh, Maryland is an exception, I think, on on this point. Uh, they have a Republican governor, and my friends in Maryland tell me that you know everybody automatically got a mail and ballot for the primary down there. Uh, so that's what I'm paying attention to. Right. And there are some counties in Pennsylvania that did move to mail ballots to every registered voter. And, you know, several organizations are trying to urge elected officials to do that in November. Can you talk about um, what the issues are for mailing everybody a ballot? What is it possible I mean, that that I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting here uh, not in the state of Pennsylvania right now, I'm having mail forwarded to somewhere else. And, you know, I never got my mail in ballot. <laughs> you know, I do have a, a postcard here on my desk telling me, you know, where I should go to vote in person, even though I'm not in the jurisdiction and told people that I wouldn't be. And I don't I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that this is sort of uh Deliberate that this is a, a deliberate effort at disenfranchisement, but there's a lot, you know, this, the demand for mail and ballots is, is putting a lot of load on election administrators. It's a lot to keep up with. Um, beyond that, in political science, the debate is really over who benefits from mail in voting, and the perception is that Democrats overwhelmingly benefit. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. There's evidence to the contrary. Other issues that come up in political science with respect to mail and voting, uh, you know, is it is it hard on certain certain groups of people? Do you know does it actually hurt turnout among certain groups of people? Um, there are security questions that people raise a lot. So you know, just it's it's unfamiliar and it's new. And when you're dealing with systems that are unfamiliar and new, 
the sort of society's inherent conservatism kicks in and people look for ways to put the brakes on stuff. That said, you know, there are states that have been doing it for a long time where they've sort of figured out how to do it right. Uh, and those are probably the states that we need to be looking at if, we, if we're going to do a lot of mail-in balloting in the future. Right, definitely. I mean, I guess just like a more generalized question, like what do you think the pressure is going to be on this election? I think we're coming out of a period in which elections have been very close. Florida 2000, that was an extremely close election. We've sort of been living in this 50-50 world, high levels of polarization, just by knowing someone's what car they own or what their position is on some other issue. You can sort of predict their voting behavior or their position on a range of other issues. And there are indications here and there that we're coming out of that world. Um, The last time we came out of a world that was that sort of 50-50 and that highly polarized was during the progressive era, you know, toward the end of the 1890s, the 19-teens, where, you know, one party was just had become really unpopular with the majority of Americans. And if you, you know, look at the election, look at the aggregate totals from uh, 2016, right? I mean, you know, that was the lowest, lowest percentage of popular votes that it, I think ever in history went to an electoral college winner, a share of the two-party vote. Uh, so, you know, that's one sign that we're coming out of this 50-50 world. The electoral college still matters in this decreasingly 50-50 world, but we're coming out of it. Uh, and the other thing you're starting to see is sort of weird, strange, divides within the parties, um, both at a generational level, and that's really stark on the Democratic side, but also at the level of issues where, you know, the the Republicans now have uh, a weird sort of group of fiscal liberals in their midst. They're not fiscally liberal on all issues, right? They can, they will sort of go with their party on certain issues, but on other issues, for example, like a wealth tax, there's a group of Republicans people who are at least voting Republican now who support that kind of thing. And on the Democratic side, you know, you're starting to see some of those divisions on economics open up a little bit, and that's creating strain within the party. So the more interesting thing about November is how people react to it, how the reform world reacts to it, and how the party coalitions react to it a year out, two years out, three years out. Does it throw, you know, and then if we get, uh, if we get another popular vote reversal, like we had in 2016, you know, what does that do to the reform movement, particularly the movement for rank choice voting, things like that? If the person who gets a majority of the two-party vote wins in the electoral college, maybe there will be less interest in reform. Uh, but if you get another popular vote reversal, the the intense interest that we now see in reform is only going to get more intense. Um, But even that, you know, once you deal with non-majority winners, there are still these weird and interesting new divides within the parties that are opening up uh, in this generational conflict that I mentioned uh, a moment ago. So that's what I'm paying attention to. I think we're in a sort of hundred year historic spot. You know, the the, the 60s were a realignment, uh, but so was the progressive era. And I think that's the better reference point for what's happening now than the 60s. 
That's interesting. Yeah. And then, I mean, on top of the pandemic, the recent civil unrest, uh, you really wonder, uh, will those divides in the party actually carry through? I mean, um, you know, you look at some third party. Yeah. And I think a lot of the third, the third, you know, and if you look at state and local government, you, you, right. You, this is really where you see third parties making inroads, not, not in a huge way, but if we go out to the Pacific Northwest, there are, you know, open, openly socialist people serving in government. Government. We now have we now have a third party in city council in Philadelphia, and that's partly, I think, a consequence of uh, what's happened to the two major parties over the last twenty years. Right? It's uh, one of them is in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of popular votes larger than the other. One of them is dominant in cities. All of the action is within that party in cities. So the fights start to express themselves, at least at a state and local level, within the party rather than between the parties. It's that's crazy to watch. As you noted, right, the battle between the Electoral College and the popular vote has been one, I think, for a while and is still very maybe misunderstood by a lot of people. It's interesting. There's a political scientist named Robert Alexander who is uh, an expert on the Electoral College, and he swears that if Texas goes blue in 2020, the Republican Party is going to become the party of Electoral College reform. Another thing that I've sort of been watching for and we haven't really seen much of it yet is uh, state legislatures deciding to change the way that they that they handle their electoral votes. Uh, Technically, a state legislature could flip a coin to determine who's going to get that state's electoral votes. Um, You don't have an affirmative right to vote. In, under the U.S. Constitution. There are things in the Constitution that say you cannot be denied the right to vote uh, on this basis or that basis or that basis. But, uh, you know, states can do whatever they want with their electoral college votes. So, you know, we're getting closer to the election and we haven't seen anything kooky happen. We haven't seen any state decide to totally revamp the way it allocates electors. But that could happen. And you mentioned Florida 2000 earlier. I mean, I remember that election pretty well. And there was talk of the state legislature just bringing an end to to the controversy over whether to continue counting the ballots in the contested counties or not and simply give the state's electoral votes to George W. Bush. Never happened, but there was talk of it. So I guess um, just, you know, a final thought. What do you think um, we can learn from this primary election amid coronavirus that can really help us in November? I think the primaries have been a good dry run for, uh, you know, an election where there's going to be a lot of demand for mail-in ballots. And that's probably, you know, the number one thing that we need to get ready for and, um, you know, re-examine some of our priors about whether that inherently benefits one party or another. Uh, take Take a look at the research that's out there and there's an increasing amount of it. Uh, And that's, you know, that needs attention. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Charlotte. See ya. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area or how it's affecting you, subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.